this week on the Back Table Podcast. When we're talking about RF versus cryo and one-on-one, people say RF is a lot faster. I will argue that you can do cryoneurolysis, which again, cryoneurolysis, what you're trying to do is cause a Sunderland type 2 nerve injury, which is an injury that basically damages the axon but leaves all the layers of the nerves intact. And by the way, you can't get anything higher than that with cryo because no probes go colder than minus 100. Versus with RFA, you always get a Sunderland 3 or 4. You are destroying the nerve. RF does cause adjacent tissue char. When we're doing things like in the neck with stellate ganglion, and there's the esophagus and the inferior thyroidal artery and the vertebral artery, and again, you have some heat sink, and you have the recurrent laryngeal nerve, and you have the thyroid, and you have the lung right there, it would probably be nice to have something that's a little gentler in the surrounding soft tissue, something that you could see when you're actively freezing. It's a little more predictable. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your home for all things interventional and otherwise minimally invasive. You can find all previous episodes of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other major podcast platforms. First, a brief message from our sponsor. Boston Scientific Interventional Oncology and Embolization is a global provider of medical devices. Boston Scientific's goal is to become the leading partner by enabling and developing minimally invasive procedures. Boston Scientific recently received 510K approval for expanded indication of the visual ice cryoablation system for palliation of pain associated with metastatic lesions involving bone in patients who have failed or are not candidates for standard radiation therapy. As the only manufacturer with this indication on label for cryoablation in the United States, Boston Scientific remains dedicated to supporting the further growth of cryoablation technology in order to provide expanded treatment options for patients. Now. Back to the show. This is your host, Jacob Fleming. Today, I have a very special guest, Dr. Alexa Levy. I think I got that one right. <laughs> Joining Chevy us. Chevy to the Levy. Chevy That's the completely Levy. right. <laughs> Joining <laughs> us from Houston. So another Texan friend, always welcome on the show. Dr. Levy, thanks for your time. Welcome to the show. Absolute pleasure to be here. Pleasure to be here with, I had no idea you were a trainee, how you were doing this and training and having a child. My hat is off to you. <laughs> well, thank you. You know, uh, sometimes I'm not sure that, you know, just as with so many things in life, you, you just do it and it ends up being a lot of fun. So, and I think our discussion today is going to be a lot of fun talking about cryoneurolysis, really hot topic that's been blowing up. And you have really caught a lot of attention with really cool cases you've been sharing on Twitter. <laughs> no, this is something uh, I was talking at a conference with some other people recently about, you know, these, these cool cases that you're showing. And so we really want to get a little bit into the nitty gritty and some pearls and pitfalls of cryoneurolysis. This is an area that's really blowing up and excited to hear your thoughts on that. But before we dive in, why don't you just tell us a little bit about your background, your training and your current practice, where you are today. Sounds great. Well, born and raised in Houston, Texas, but raised by two New Yorkers. So I talk at the speed of light, but I say words like y'all. And if I'm around Southerners, I might get a little bit of a drawl. And I totally <laughs> did not mean to rhyme then, but that's what happens. That's what happens. Yeah. Born and raised in Houston, went to undergraduate at Emory University, came back to Texas for medical school, always knew I wanted to be a doctor. No, actually, that's a lie. Initially, I wanted to be a lawyer. And when I pitched that to my magnet school in high school, like, why do you want to go to a math and science program to be a lawyer? I'm like, because the scientific method is really good to use and apply to cases and, and how you prioritize stuff. And 
somehow that worked. But um, obviously, here I am, not a lawyer. I'm a doctor. I did an internship with my uncle in a hospital, and I just realized that I really wanted to make an impact in people's lives. And so went to medical school. Medical school was done in Texas because it is so much cheaper if you're a Texas resident, but did my training at uh, Utesca in San Antonio and then ended up at back at Emory for my radiology residency as well as my IR training. I was very lucky at Emory to meet Dr. David Prologo. He is the one who's kind of leading the way with crown neurolysis and interventional pain. He is so much bigger than anything I think you could never expect when you meet him. He is an incredibly affable person, amazing with his patients, extremely thoughtful, and really, really wanting to change the world with what he does and very free with his time and his mentorship. So I was lucky enough to be one of his mentees. When I was in residency, you know, did I always think I was going to do pain? No. Did I even think I was going to be a radiologist? No. I initially was going to be a cardiothoracic surgeon. And I think that's a conversation for another time. I'm very happy with where I landed. My grandmother, when I was in my second year residency, got diagnosed with metastatic uterine cancer. And she found out she had pain in her rib. And they did everything they could, but ultimately it slowly progressed. And they tried to control her pain with pain medications, oral opioids, over and over and over and over and over again. She had previously had an intrathecal pump because she was in a terrible car accident at the age of 50. And at that time, actually was told she'd never walk again. And of course, my Polish grandmother was like, that ain't happening, and walked again. Even though she was in chronic pain, you know, you would never know, but she walked again at that point. So was already on pump therapy, was already on a lot of high-dose opioids. And one time, I remember I got a call in the morning from my uncle, who's a radiation oncologist, who was primarily taking care of her and said, your grandmother almost died. They over-medicated her with fentanyl. She stopped breathing. They quickly reversed her. We're doing everything we can to take care of her. And so probably the next day, I called my grandmother to ask her how she's doing. And I say, Mimi, you know, how are you doing? And this is my positive, tough-as-nails grandmother who I make cookies with and, unlike me, would never curse. But she said, Lexi Page, I cannot lie, but I feel like shit. And nobody should ever have to feel this way ever in their life. And she ended up dying, you know, and that was one of the saddest things to watch such an incredibly strong woman never complained about anything to raise three rambunctious kids to sit there and almost be killed by the medicine that's supposed to be helping her and then die in pain. And so it became very important to me in my career to try to make an impact on that in any way I can. So I was just fortuitous as with Dr. Prologo. Took my first job at UT Houston, where I was for the last three years, and they had no pain practice whatsoever. And so talking of Prologo, you also hear from Dr. Alan Zog, the really important thing about collaboration, you know, everybody likes to say, this is mine, this is my field. I don't want you in it. You can't take my patients. Well, I don't want to do that. You can keep them. <laughs> but this is what I can do and this is what I can add that you can't do. How can we collaborate? I was very lucky that one of my good friends was an anesthesia pain doctor at UT and she had problems dealing with complex regional pain syndrome and she hated doing stellates and I would love for somebody to do that. And so that's kind of how the doors kind of opened with that. And I can get more into how I slowly built my practice, but continued to collaborate and still do collaborate with anesthesia pain, with PMNR, with neurology, with vascular surgery, wow. even those patients have a lot of chronic pain and with orthopedic surgery, kind of how 
together, we can do a multimodal approach to pain. And very quickly, I would say by the end of my three years, had patients every single week for pain and was doing probably three to four stellates a week, which if you know how small of a little area that is for stellates alone, that's the pretty big. And so that was kind of like towards the end. And then decided I was needed a little bit of a change. I have a two-year-old who has a lot of opinions. And I have a four-year-old who's the most amazing little man in the world, um, but he has some special needs. And I'm married to a urologist. So our schedules were pretty crazy. So I decided, let me try private practice a little bit. Let me try a little bit more of an easy schedule. Easy. (laughs) (laughs) It's all relative. um, (laughs) It's all relative. That may allow for a little bit better work-life balance. And so I ended up going to a private practice radiology partners where I was told I could build up my pain practice again, as well as anything else I do. And now I'm working on building that again the last three months and have had some success and then building up the Y90 practice. So I am a wealth of information about the transition from academics to private practice. And doing cryo in private practice. Yeah, that is, uh, I'm, I'm really glad we'll get to talk about that because I think this is, this is a really important topic because cryo, have, we've seen a lot of advancement with this. It, of course, you mentioned Dr. Prologo really leading the charge on that and several other places around the country, but really more fo- centered on the academic centers. But I think it's going to be crucial Dr. Prologo talked uh, a while back when he was on the show about how he, he doesn't want people to come to him kind of destination medicine style. He says, we have this army of folks of interventional radiologists out throughout the country in the community who can do these things. So yeah, talking about how we can build up cryo in, in the private practice. So maybe since we brought it up, just to say a few words about that, how have you kind of gotten that started in terms of you know, getting the the equipment that you need, for example, and and the scanner time and that kind of thing. So I'm going to tell you, it's challenging. I've built both practices from scratch, honestly, without a lot of help, just with uh, a lot of grit, uh, a lot of making relationships, and just it just takes one relationship to kind of get you started. I think that so even doing Y90, I did the first Y90 ever at Memorial Hermann Sugarland. They didn't have it, you know. In three months, I was able to do it, and I'm very proud of that. But it's hard. You know, when you go out to a place that doesn't know what you have, you have to give them a reason to support you. So with cryo, number one, they already had access to cryo in general. So you have to make sure that it's within. Normally, the rep can just sit there and can bring the machine. They can bring the probes, but there has to be a loss in number, at least as far as Memorial Hermann goes, so that they can adequately bill for it. And then you have to show them, okay, so if I'm going to do this, am I going to use anesthesia? Am I not going to use anesthesia? Is the CT scan able to accommodate anesthesia cases? Does the CT scanner have CT fluoro? Because CT fluoro will cut down on the case time by 25% and time is money. They can be scanning patients in those times and those are adequate RBUs. How many probes am I going to be using? Am I going to do more cryoneurolysis versus tumor ablation, which I think those are two completely different things and it's actually important to touch on as well. People don't seem to, it's a hard thing to grasp that you don't need to do 10-8, 10-8, 10-8, you know, for everything that you can just do eight minutes and be done. Is there the correct anesthesia hookups? I think I already said that. Are we going to be able to bill for it? Are we going to be able, is my private practice group going to be able to bill for the professional fee while the hospital bills for the technical fee? That was something I actually didn't even expect to cost. Um, what is the actual take-home product? You know, is it something that's profitable for the hospital? Oof, ugh. I'm like actually cringing 
and feeling knives go in my tummy as I talk about cost and like patient care because you don't want to do it. it. I think it's gross, but it's very important because medicine is still a business. And so you can help people and still do something that is profitable for the hospital. And you need to be able to show them that it is profitable for them to want to support you. And so that is a Reader's Digest version of kind of all the things that you need to think about when you're kind of going into it. And now that I've been through it a couple times, you know, it's it's definitely something that is totally feasible. And then don't even mind with the insurance and these T codes. I thought the T codes were fine and great. T codes are not good if you're in private practice. And okay, there's a lot more work of what you have to do, which is why I'm now even more focused on trying to do research towards this. I just did a paper in JVIR and complex regional pain syndrome and cryoablation of the stellate ganglion. And it was a small group, but at least it's something. There's nothing getting published because it's so hard nowadays to do research as well as the things that people don't realize. Right. So thank you for sharing all those details. I think, you know, these are uh, topics that, you know, this is not the stuff that we went into medicine to do and get excited about, but it's really crucial to be able to say, hey, this is why this thing that I can do and want to do to help my patients is a good thing for you and everyone involved. It can take, it's, it's very difficult. And you also mentioned the difference between cryoneurolysis and cryotumor ablation. That is a really great point. I don't want to digress too much into that, but it, it brought up something that I want to talk about. I think is very important when talking about pain therapies in general, the workhorse of pain ablations has been radio frequency for decades. And so you talk to most pain people, uh, they probably haven't used much cryo at all. Whereas RF, medial branch rhizotomies, SI rhizotomies, whatever you want to do, it's all pretty much RF based. And so as we begin to talk specifically about cryoneurolysis, what are the advantages over RF? And so just in general with cryoneurolysis, when and why? So actually I can talk to this because I got a lot of questions about that from the JVIR editor. (laughs) Because they said, oh, you can do cryoneurolysis for or RF for stellates. And I'm like, what? what is RF? But the thing that I wrote, I, I wrote a book chapter when I was in residency with Darren Keyes and Mitch Ehrmantraub for treatment of HCCs. And so I actually wrote about RF and cryo and microwave and why you use one, and irreversible electroporation and when you use one versus the other. And that was about the extent of my experience with RF because people just are not trained to use it anymore unless you're doing basivertebral nerve ablation, unless you're doing median nerve ablation, like you had mentioned, or you're doing like osteocool type ablation and bones. People are not using it anymore. When we're talking about RF versus cryo and one-on-one, what are one, what are advantages versus that? People say RF is a lot faster. Okay, great. I will argue that you can do cryoneurolysis, which again, cryoneurolysis what you're trying to do is cause a Sunderland type 2 nerve injury, which is an injury that basically damages the axon, but leaves all the layers of the nerves intact. And by the way, you can't get anything higher than that with cryo because no probes go colder than minus 100. So very possible. Versus with RFA, you always get a Sunderland 3 or 4. You are destroying the nerve. Okay. Um, and so because you don't need to spend that long freezing, you can do 8 minutes. You can do 10 minutes. It's not going to be an entire... 36-minute freeze-thaw cycle, for example. So it will be longer, but not as long. You see the ice. You can see where it's forming. And you can see where it's zero degrees. It's going to remember 
ice means zero degrees. Ice does not mean minus 22, which is actually 22 to 23, which is actually cell death. It just means zero. So you can actually see when it's getting close to structures, it may cause inflammation, but won't cause damage. You can't see that with RF whatsoever. So it's less predictable. RF does cause adjacent tissues char. When we're doing things like in the neck with stellate ganglion, and there's the esophagus and the inferior thyroidal artery and the vertebral artery, and again, you have some heat sink, and you have the recurrent laryngeal nerve, and you have the thyroid, and you have the lung right there, it would probably be nice to have something that's a little gentler in the surrounding soft tissue, something that you could see when you're actively freezing. It's a little more predictable. Something else too, again, talking about the Sutherland injuries, when you're bleeding a tumor or you're ablating a median nerve, those don't carry any mo motor fibers or anything. So you're not really worried about that. Versus with cryo, you're causing a nerve injury, but you allow those to regenerate. Do you really want to do radiofrequency ablation of your splanchnic nerves and destroy them? They're bilateral, just like as God gave you two kidneys. They're probably important. And you probably don't want to destroy them. Not saying you can't, but that's kind of the thought process is that you are inducing a nerve injury versus permanent nerve damage, which permanent nerve damage, fine in some settings, not fine in other settings. You're able to see what you're doing versus you can't see what you're doing. And it's more general around the surrounding soft tissues. So those are the reasons why I think there's been a lot more of a push for cryo. Gotcha. And tell us a little bit about the specific nerve targets you're using it for. Of course, you're doing a lot of work with stellates. What are some of the other ganglia or nerves that you're targeting? Yeah, man, if you ever told me I'd be a person becoming, you know, somebody called me expert, and I'm like, no. <laughs> and stellates, I do a lot, a lot with stellates, but I think it all depends on what you're doing. So again, talking about nerve targeting, any nerve, honestly, I've done it for phantom limb. I actually published a case report of doing a posterior tubular nerve block and cryoablation for phantom toe pain after traumatic amputation from atheroembolism. So that's something you can do. I've done it for complex visual pain syndrome. I've done stellates for those, as well as for VTAC, as well as for long COVID, which is a whole nother topic, as well as for pain control for pancose tumors. I've done lumbar sympathetics for complex regional pain syndrome. I've done obturator and pudendal nerves, pudendal for neuralgia, obturator nerves and pudendal for tumoral encasement, superior hypogastric nerves. Those are actually only blocks, no cryos. It's too hard to work around. Those would actually be an ethanol. I've done femoral nerves, actually a lot of motor nerves I've done wherever there's tumoral encasement. So, but pretty much any nerve you can think of, you can do a cryo of if you can get there safely. The only one I haven't tried yet is I've done a couple trigeminal nerve blocks and I haven't tried sticking a cryo probe in somebody's face. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> That's one where the, the RF technique has kind of been described over the years and uh, yes, pulsed RF. You're right. Yeah. So, so uh, cryo, I mean, potentially could be really great for that, especially, you know, kind of talking about, uh, you, you know, you mentioned the Sutherland 2 uh, injury and in that it's kind of allowing the nerve to go through that regenerative process. And I, I, I don't know if this is totally just wrong to think about it this way, but I almost think about it as kind of a neuromodulation sort of thing. We're not just carpet, yes, carpet bombing 100%. the crap out of it, but giving it time to reprogram, sort of. Exactly. The way Prologo describes, and actually I can also back up to and say, I, obviously I've done celiac splanchnics, aortical renal ganglions, like any regulatory center, I pretty much cry it. But it's 100% what you do. You're basically rebooting the nerve. You're saying you are overactive, you are overstimulated. Let me 
make it so nothing gets transmitted down to you for a while. And so you can kind of regroup and get your stuff together. Like you're okay. You're fine. Stop sending signals. Just a digression. I mean, is there, is there anything more radiology than saying, hey, unplug it and plug it back in again? You know, that's kind of... No. it radiology you know that's kind of our life in in training so i mean hey it works on and off (laughs) no it totally does and it's great and when it works it works super well which is really really cool and so i really enjoyed it and started getting i guess a little creative with it yeah there's a lot of room for creativity with it i think that's something that you know and the interventional radiology mindset is is really all about that i think that's something unique that interventional radiologists can bring to the pain therapies. And you're talking about this a moment ago, you know, you can get sort of some, you know, raised eyebrows or, you know, people getting a little bit defensive of what they consider their turf when we talk about uh, radiologists getting into pain. And I think that we come at it from a different angle, you know, and and bring some of our problem solving and th- ways of thinking outside of the box using different tools. Like I said, most most interventional pain docs are not using cryo to any significant degree. And we've we've kind of taken that uh, from what's been done within our specialty. And I think we can do uh, a lot of really cool stuff with that. And so I, I do want to talk about, you know, specifics in terms of how do you, how do you talk to patients about this? And obviously you, you just listed off a myriad of different topics and so are uh, different targets. And so, so many different things, but just talk to us a little in general about kind of the process of patient selection, how you generally plan your procedures and the discussion in clinic with the patient, you know, what, what can be expected, talking about risks and that sort of thing. Sure. So that's all these super important topics. So number one, everybody's a candidate. Okay. There's always something you could potentially do for someone. And if I can't do it, I know who can. So I still have connections with other anesthesiologists, PMNR colleagues, neurology, where I can send the patient somewhere else if there's something that I can't do. So becoming a person who is known for doing pain, if you don't do it all, then you need to know people who can and you need to be able to get them in and be able to network them out because that is your patient. That is the most important thing. You take care of that patient like your mother, your brother, somebody you actually like in your family. And treat them like family because there is nothing worse than to be in pain and there's nothing a patient wants more than to be heard and to be understood. So hearing them out and evaluating them. And there's nothing more that a doctor wants too. Your patient's in pain and they're terrible, they can't manage it. Let me help you. I will talk to them. I will find out if they need something else, I'll discuss it with you and I will get them referred out so they can get their problem fixed. That is the best thing you can do and say to refer and to build your practice. So that's the first thing. My phone is uh, always on for my referrers. All my patients have my email address. I am constantly checking it. If I had a second phone, my patients would have my phone. So being accessible is super important. When I'm evaluating a patient for pain, so it kind of imagine, is it chronic or is it cancer related? So let's talk about cancer related. I had one that got referred to me over the weekend that I looked at today a patient who has metastatic cancer of an unknown primary and just has this diffuse, nonspecific abdominal pain. Normally what you want to do is you want to read the patient's history, find out if it's acute, if it's chronic, if they have cancer. You want to look at some type of cross-sectional imaging and you want to see first, is there anything on that imaging that looks like it could cause the pain described in the note, you know, some kind of general pain in one area or not. 
Is there a mass encasing the femoral nerve that's causing pain to shoot down their leg? Do they have a cervical cancer that's invading their obturator or pudendal nerves? Something that you could target. Is there something that is in the splanchnic bed that is causing pain? Or is there nothing? And maybe you just try a splanchnic block to get something general. So I always look at cross-sectional, Im- look at the notes, number one, look at cross-sectional imaging, number two, to try to determine some potential targets. And for this particular patient, generalized abdominal pain, it was the most unimpressive CT I've ever seen, retroperitoneal adenopathy, and just diffuse abdominal pain, which she was describing. But I look up a little higher and I realize just inferior to the right where the celiac plexus is coming off at the celiac axis, retrocural is this massive node. And then I look a little more cranial and there's a lot of dirt in the fat. And I'm like, gosh, this node is invading the splanchnic plexus and it's probably contributing to her abdominal pain. What if I planned after I talked to her, to treat the splanchnic plexus and then try to treat that little node and cause some regression back from the diaphragm and from the crura and see if that helps a little bit. So that's kind of the thought process of things I go through. Next, most importantly, go see the patient. Go see the patient yourself. I had people ask me, you know, this patient has eight out of 10 pain here. You know, what would you do? And I said, where can they point to it with one finger? Is it sharp? Is it stabbing? Is it burning? Does it radiate? Does anything make it better? Does anything make it worse? How does it feel when they take pain meds? Does it regress at all? Is there anything that exacerbates it? You really have to get incredibly granular with pain patients because what you'll find is often you will help pretty much every single patient, but not to the degree that they would normally think about it, if that makes sense. You can make a change and and impact everybody's pain, who you treat, but it will be in one certain sector of what they categorize as their pain. They'll get less crampy. They'll be able to eat more. They'll still get a crescendo of their pain, but it will be to like a five or six versus a nine out of 10, and it will go away faster. So the more granular you can be with your patient interview, the better you will be at helping your patient succeed and getting their pain under control and realize that they are making progress. That also being said, but the first thing I say to patients when I see them, and it's the hardest thing to say to somebody is, I'm sorry, but there's no way I'm going to be able to get your pain zero. That's not possible. And if anybody tells you that, they're lying to you. And that's a hard truth to accept that you're going to always have some level of pain, but I am here to help you manage it. I am here to help you get through it. I am here to hopefully reduce it by 50%, if not more. I am here to hopefully get you on a lower dose of opioids so that you can be more active in your life. You can get out. You can drive. You're not sleeping all day. You don't feel constipated. You don't feel nauseous. And if that doesn't work, here's plan B. So I think having a very, very honest and real conversation with the patient is the most important thing. There are no magic wands for pain. It is always going to be multimodal in management. And so a big part of what I do is is therapy, 100%. I would say that my initial clinic visits are usually about 35 to 40 minutes and the follow-ups are much faster. And that's actually for any patient I see. That's just the way I am. I like to describe things, everything, and be very thorough so that if anything comes up, they can feel free to ask me. And then my subsequent visits actually end up being a lot shorter. With pain too, when you do that, you can actually help patients kind of identify what kind of pain they're having get those granular things, and then you have something to compare to. And then you could show them their progress. I can say my complex regional pain syndrome patients I've treated, they actually continue to improve. And I think that's just because of learning to accept that this is their new baseline in their new normal. Even not because I didn't do anything. 
I usually get them a decent amount of pain relief, but them willing to adapt, doing being able to do more physical therapy and learning to do some cognitive restructuring about what their current life is. And that's so important. And that's how you maintain a practice. That's why I can say I love my pain patients. They're amazing. And people are like, are you crazy? They're so hard. It's like, no, they just want to be heard. And they need little goals, and little things to see, look, this is what you said before. This is what's happening. That's good. Not to say that your current pain is not important, but look where we have made improvement strides and made improvements. So those are things I really focus on in the clinic visit. And of course, I talked about that in my physical exam, asking about history, blood thinners, you know, typical procedural things, uh, chronic health issues. And then I plan for a procedure if I have something to target and usually have multiple steps after that. General risk of cryo, gosh, it depends. Like, you know, is it going to be close to the skin and they can get frostbite? Is it something where, you know, depending on the pathophysiology of the disease, you know, when I cryostellate ganglion for VTAC and for complex regional pain syndrome, they do great. And some get horners. When I do it for long COVID, a third of them get horners and they get a raging neuritis, which some describe as the worst pain in their life, which goes away after six weeks, very predictably. But you have to talk to people about that and tell them how to manage it and give them, guide them through it, have follow-up visits, tramadol for pain, lidoderm patches for, for the shooting neuritis, anti-inflammatories, bedroll dose pack. You have to be able to handle all those things. And also brings up another really big important point. You should almost, I say almost never because there's situations I do, go straight to cryo. You do a block first. You need to make sure people have success with the block that they can want to have longer lasting relief and see that it's actually efficacious. Especially I have people coming to me and asking me questions now about just doing cryo for long COVID. Don't do that. Not a good idea to go straight there because of the effects of and the side effects of having the cryo in that particular pathophysiology. You're not going to have any more patients after your first one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, really good point there. And uh, that was something you mentioned to me earlier. I hadn't really thought of before about kind of the different response between blocks and cryo. Can you expound on that a little bit more? What are the situations in which uh, you see quite a different response? I would say in general, if talking about response to treatment, if you have a positive block, you're going to get a positive response to cryo. And it will be about the same level, if not a little bit more. It's usually very predictive of how they're going to do. Now, when we start to change the pathophysiology of what we're doing, remember cryo too, like you can't distinguish sensory and motor. So for example, if I'm going after tumor encasing the obturator nerve, I already know that's going to affect adduction, but older lady, she has a walker and within about six months, it's going to regenerate. She's going to be fine. She can still walk without her adductors and that's okay. And all those things are kind of what are going through my mind whenever I'm thinking cryo. Whatever I'm talking about you know, block versus, again, cryo, sorry, I'm kind of being a little repetitive. Blocks are temporary. You inhibit signaling via two different methods with a local anesthetic and then also by with a steroid. And there's two different mechanisms by which those actually inhibit neurosignaling and can actually regulate pain and nociceptive signaling. Obviously, over time, that wears off. And the whole idea with cryo is that it lasts a lot longer. And so... I would always do a block before cryo, except in those cases when I have patients who have tumoral encasement and I can target it to a nerve, then I'm not necessarily going to always want to put a bunch of steroids around a nerve. I'd probably just go ahead and cryo that area. After we have a nice thorough talk about consequences of crying certain nerves, you know, I did have one patient 
who was in her 30s, who had metastatic cervical cancer and had been in a wheelchair for the last three months and unable to walk in terrible pain in her legs. And I was able to map it out to, and I'm already forgetting which nerve it was, but I said, okay, you know, I see this, I can map out, this is where your pain is, this is where I see tumoral encasement, I can ablate this and I can get you pain relief and synonymous and tingling, but you're not going to be able to walk with this leg. Oh, that's fine. That's fine. So I said, no, you don't understand. You're going to feel better and you're not going to be able to walk. Are you going to be okay? Within about six months, you can do, you know, braces and boots and stuff and the nerve will regenerate unless the tumor, you know, grows back and invades it again. And I will say I have had patients who had two two years out and for the tumor to regrow and cause issues. So this is something that's really good and really efficacious for patients. And of course, on board, yes, doc, yes, doc. And I made sure to record this and have plenty of conversations. Next day, went and saw her after I bladed her in tears. I can't walk. I can't walk. I can't walk. And I said, how's your pain? It's gone. Okay. So for those things too, I would say, so in general, you can go straight to cryo, but just make sure you have a very, very, very real talk with your patients and make sure you document about what's going to happen too. Absolutely. The expectations are so important. And uh, my mentor, Dr. Beal has said, you need the the patient. Oh, he's wonderful. Yeah. He's he's fantastic. (laughs) And, uh, you know, just learn so much every day. And one of the things that comes up again and again is the patient needs to be able to be a partner in their own care. And uh, I I think, you know, we, we can't, you know, make all our patients want to cooperate and that kind of thing. But I think explaining as best as we can and trying to get on their level of understanding and really letting them know, hey, I'm not, like you said earlier, I'm not going to be able to take your pain away 100%. We're going to do our best to mitigate it. And then these are potential things uh, that can happen and just letting them know. And so a lot of times if, you know, when you're going for a mixed nerve and predictably you get a motor deficit afterwards. If the patient knows what to expect, a lot of times they may say, hey, I feel I knew to expect this. Other times it's uh, patients that say, oh yeah, let's let's do it. And maybe they're not kind of hearing it to the same extent that you want to, but it's it's so crucial to have that conversation. Like, and then obviously on the medical legal aspect, it's completely indefensible if the patient had no idea, hey, I'm not going to be able to walk after this. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's Correct. no And then also too, I mean, even if it's just a sensory thing, they can have some numbness and tingling. And so making sure they have that. Like if you do an ablation for pedental neuralgia, they're going to have some numbness down there and not have some sensation down there. So you have to make yourself very, very clear about that. Genitofemoral nerve blocks, I do a lot for chronic testicular pain. You know, haven't gone after ablating those yet because I don't think that's going to be very well tolerated by the patient. So making sure you have, like as you said, very, very clear expectations and that they are a part of their care. Absolutely. So uh, we've been uh, teasing it uh, for the whole time so far. I would like to jump in and talk some specifics about the stellate ganglion. And so (laughs) first of all, what the hell is the stellate ganglion? (laughs) I love it. So the way I describe it to my patients in Houston, and you think about it in any big city you are, think of it as it's the 610 loop in Houston. It's the big loop that goes around the city. It sits on either side of your neck and it receives inputs coming in from the brain, go into it, get regulated, go out to the extremities, go down your chest, go down to your heart, 
go to the tops of the lungs, and then vice versa. Things come back in there and get regulated. So it's a major regulatory center of inputs uh, from the brain and from the extremities and vice versa. It has been implicated as far back as the 1940s and playing a role in heart regulation. So what they found is that people who have rapid heart rates, if they did a sympathectomy of the left stellate ganglion, refractory ventricular tachycardia, some patients would get some improvement in those symptoms. And so over time, they started blocking the stellate ganglion and they would block the left. And then if that didn't work, they would try blocking the right. Never at the same time, because the thought is that you could potentially completely stop the heart. Now, with that being said, I can tell you I have now cryoblated both sides. Granted, that patient, now ears wide open, had a pacemaker and was 100% pacemaker dependent. Okay, I wouldn't just go jumping and doing that. But that's kind of where it first started off in the literature, was refractory ventricular tachycardia. Then what they found out, and I forget why this was initially done, is they did a lot of retrospective studies on combat veterans. And they found that combat veterans, when they blocked the right stellate ganglion, they had better outcomes with management of their PTSD and anxiety when in combination with therapy than without the stellate ganglion block uh, for over up to or over three months. And so usually three months was when they start, start seeing lack of benefit and they'd usually have to go back in for another block again. So and that was using only lidocaine. So very interesting, not always using a steroid versus if you look at retractory Whenever you have VTAC, if you do lidocaine, as soon as that's off, they're going right back into VTAC. Or if you do a steroid, once that wears off, they're going right back into VTAC. There's also some interesting nuance, I would say, too, to VTAC, to which patients respond and which don't. But I think I'll avoid diving in deep into that right now. And you can kind of do an assessment and kind of determine who's going to respond. But just interesting to know, you know, PTSD, lidocaine, kind of works, VTAC. Good. Complex regional pain syndrome. So regulatory of nociceptive sy symptoms, particularly for the upper extremity and for the face, uh, is the target of the stellate ganglion. Again, once the block wears off, symptoms come back. Then we get into long COVID. There was a paper published um, that looked at a two case reports on patients where they blocked the stellate. So why would they block the stellate for long COVID? That makes no sense. Well, long COVID is not just a, <laughs> I'm a little sick, <laughs> cough that people seem to think it is. It is this terrible syndrome where patients have a predominant of dysautonomia symptoms where their heart rates can be anywhere resting. 120 to 130, they stand up at 140s, where they have these terrible vertigo episodes daily that they feel like they're going to pass out multiple day, multiple times a day. I had a patient who got a subarachnoid hemorrhage as a result of this dysautonomia, where they develop POT syndrome and their, their blood pressure drops into the toilet, but then goes super high. And patients have underlying hypertension. So they're on all these weird antihypertensives and then their blood pressure drops and they get dizzy and they faint, where they have terrible brain fog, where they try to sit there and think about what words they want. It's almost like they've had a stroke. The words are in their head, but they can't communicate them out. Where they have problems with antigrade memory, where they have problems with multitasking, where they, they can't multitask anymore and they can't focus. Worsening of anxiety or PTSD. I've had a patient whose anxiety got so bad that she was literally like a board in the room and like couldn't move. It was debilitating to anything that she could do. These patients, these are nurses, people that work at the grocery store. I've had doctors and people who can't work or function in society anymore. So, and then there's the pulmonary stuff. But this is long COVID. 
this is something that I have become really, really passionate about ever since I started seeing some of these patients. But with the history of the regulation of the stellate ganglion on the heart and in PTSD, somebody said, huh, let me see if this helps with long COVID. And that case report showed that it did. And the patient had a dramatic improvement in their symptoms. And with what? With lidocaine. So I don't want to get uh, too much into it because I do have a paper that's submitted uh, on a study on several patients that we did try to keep it very pure lidocaine only so that if this is something that does get published and hopefully it's what insurance companies need because uh, let me tell you private factors or anything you do anything you do with pain or with nerves insurance companies wow they don't want to help you they don't want to help the patients no they it do is, not um, yep. it's all considered experimental so if pain is also something you want to go to get ready to do peer-to-peers and I will tell you, I have fought tooth and nail for a lot of my patients, and particularly my long COVID patients, and I am so happy every day that I did. But get ready for it, because until you do more research, this is what's going to happen. Absolutely. But anyways, um, stellates for that, and then uh, eventually cryos for some, when some of them have blocks wear off. Some of them, I have one patient who's a year and two months out, his block is still working. Wow. It's really unpredictable. That's one thing about pain is, you know, even with something as simple as like a knee injection or a hip injection, we can typically tell them, hey, you will get some relief from this, but how long? I don't know. And it's it's hard to say because clearly the benefit for some patients way outlasts the duration of the medication. So there, there's uh, certainly things that are much deeper to that. You know, we kind of talked about sort of neuromodulation. Obviously, you know, a block is is not really neuromodulation, but there's something deeper there. And so we always, you know, always have to be able to talk to the patients about not really sure how long it will last, but if it does, if it does come back, here's what we can kind of do in terms of cryo and those kind of things. I'm really interested about how multi, just multi-use the stellate ganglion is. It does so many oh, different it's things. It's incredible. It's, it's incre- incredible. It's, I mean, it's really amazing. At one point, you know, my partner, Dr. Zavin Janja, who's amazing, he's one of my colleagues at UT, was like, Levy, I looked at your schedule and it was stellate, 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 like <laughs> stellates. And it's, it's something that honestly, even if you're getting into pain, like it's something that really opens a lot of doors because all medical ICUs have patients that go into refractory or heart centers, heart and vascular centers, have people that go into refractory VTAC. And they are desperate. They've had multiple ablations, other things. If you're the person who can come in and do a stellate and then subsequently a cryo, you are really making a really, really big difference and adding a pillar to something that can help people. And that's what we're doing, right, as interventional radiologists and just in general. You know, I'm at two reward today and it was so cool as we're talking about all this recurrent sarcoma. Uh, you know, oh, you know, we well, can maybe do, can we resect it, but it's such a mess. Oh, I can, you know, do some targeted radio surgery. I was like, oh, I could probably cryo that and it would be fine, you know? And then we're talking about different treatments for things and how multimodal we have been able to do. And now patients, it's not, this is the last choice. It's like, this is one of many choices of things that you can do. And that's the cool thing about what we do. Yeah, it, it is really cool. And uh, just bringing everything in the toolbox to, uh, to the problem at hand. One thing I want to ask with the stalate ganglion being uh, such so important for so much regulation, what are the potential uh, complications of blocking or ablating it? The, uh, are there any serious untoward consequences that you uh, talk to the patients about as a result of this? 
So in general, it has to do with targeting. And before the advent of using ultrasound, which some pain physicians still don't, they use fluoro, complication rate was as high as like 20% that something could happen. Because let's talk about the eloquent anatomy that is there. The vertebral artery, the carotid artery, the jugular vein, the inferior thyroidal artery, the lung is right there on top because I tend to aim for T, the anterior aspect of the origin of T1, you know, versus anesthesiologists aim for T6. So guess what? Recurrent laryngeal nerve is there. The thyroid is there. You're a lot closer to the aspect of, of the esophagus. So all these things, bleeds, strokes, hoarseness, pneumos, all that stuff, a lot of the complications can be significantly decreased just by using ultrasound, okay? Using ultrasound allow you to kind of mark your position. You can use lidocaine to hide or to set to push things away. And then I actually, my favorite combination is using CT with ultrasound. You do a CTA, you, you map everything out, you draw a line where you want to stick, you place your probe on that line, and then you stick your needle in there. And it takes two minutes and it's fantastic and very quick. And, and the results are, are usually immediate. So also important to note with blocks. Results are either immediate from the bupivacaine or they slowly increase over the next 24 to 48 hours and peak at 72 and stay maintained once the steroid kicks in versus cryo, immediate. So all those things by those complications are things I still talk to patients about, but in reality, is it something that I wish I could find wood to knock on? I have nothing. I have my Peloton box, by the way. When we talk to Dr. Sog, what he has, he has his thing on Kypho. Kyphon boxes. I have my thing on a Peloton box because can't preach health if you're not a part of it. Yeah, you're actually Anyways, riding the Peloton uh, right now as we speak, aren't you? 100%. 100%. Doing an Olivia workout. Yeah. She's nuts. No, <laughs> but I forgot what we were just talking about. We, we were just kind of talking. You, you actually uh, got into the next question I was going to ask, which is the, the actual procedure of either blocking or ablating the stellate ganglion, which is great. Yeah. I still talk about all those complications, but I say they're like less than 2% risk. Um, and all the ones I've done, I probably had one retropharyngeal hematoma from a cryo, and that's it. And the whole thing too is when you do a block, you use it, I mean, and that's a 17 gauge needle, right? When you do a block, oh my gosh, like we stick a 22 gauge needle in everything. Actually, when I tell patients, I was like, here, you see, you see my PA right there? I could take the needle, poke her in the belly with it poke her order about 10 times and say, have a great day. She'd be a little <laughs> upset at me because she's going to be sore, but ain't nothing going to happen. So the safety profile of the needle we use, I mean, we do that for super gast gastric nerve blocks and all that stuff. You know, it's, it's, it's so safe. So there's, is there any person I wouldn't do a stellate on? No. <laughs> I think it's probably one of the more safe procedures versus splanchnics. I mean, you're scanning by lungs and you're right there by the diaphragm and by the intercostal nerves and getting the right angles. You know, you can actually cause a lot more harm. But a stellate? Gotcha. You mentioned uh, Horner's earlier. Is that something that shows up in the context of these? Yes. And uh, usually it's expected. It's actually kind of funny. It's a lot more reported in the anesthesiology literature. And I wonder if it has to do with getting a lot closer to the superior cervical ganglion because they're hitting it at C6 versus I'm hitting it at T1. Because I would say rarely does it happen. But again, with my long COVID patients, about third, a third of them. So always something to talk about. When it comes up, it usually goes away after about a week. Gotcha. It's almost a positive fighting. They actually used to say when you're doing uh, stellate ganglion blocks, and now I also can tell you it happens with cryos too, 
is the positive finds that you hit it. Horner syndrome, unilateral, bilateral, or contralateral. Doesn't specify. An increase in temperature on the ipsilateral side. Um, and a feeling of uh, that increased temperature on the ipsilateral side are all positive findings that you actually hit it. Gotcha. That's re- that's really interesting because we think of those as uh, being, you know, complications, things we didn't really intend, but they are positive findings. These are expected outcomes, really. So that, that is really good to know, and that's something that's good for the patient to know up front. Yeah, you know, I'm like, you may look like you have a stroke, but you didn't. So actually, it's very important to warn the patient it's not a stroke. Now, now, you know, if other things start happening, maybe go to the hospital, but you know. Right. That's great. So we talked about the, the entire approach for uh, the stellate ganglion block and uh, cryoablation. Uh, I'm a little bit of kind of just uh, an equipment nerd. I'm just kind of curious. Tell me uh, about kind of the cryoprobes you use. And for most of these cryoneurolysis cases, are you just using, you know, one probe? These aren't really the tumor ablations, with, you know, that Dr. Jennings or Dr. Sog do with a jillion probes placed in? 100%. So very important. Also important too, when we're talking about focal tumoral like metastectomy, when it's encasing a nerve and you do a one-to-one match, even then, like I go gangbusters-ish, but I'm not trying to get rid of the whole met. That's not the purpose. This is for pain and palliation. So I'm making sure I'm targeting everything around the nerve, but I wouldn't use more than three or four probes and probably ice forces around that area. When we're talking nerve ganglia or any kind of nerve to ablate, well, where are you ablating? What type of shape do you need? If you're ablating along the vertebral bodies, then you want more of a rod type shape, right? So you cover the whole area. So like with splanchnics, they sit from T10 to T12 retrocural. So you want you have a larger area to cover and it's kind of, you know, oval in shape. So you want to use those. Uh, pearls may not get as much coverage back there. Force, way too big. So again, keep in mind, we're just injuring the nerves. We're not trying to create a massive ice ball that people love to sit and tweet and show. Whenever we're doing stellates, again, I'm resting the probe on it. So whatever is anterior to the probe is what I'm going to freeze. So I would say you probably could use almost anything. I use a I use a seed, actually ice sphere, not a seed. You could probably use an ice seed. I don't like ice seeds very much because they tend to freeze along the shaft. Um, upwards and backwards to so increase the frostbite. So if you use a sphere, single eight minute, that's all you need. Um, when we're talking sympathetic ganglion, 10, 3, 3, 3 is something you do. Although today I did 10, 3, 5, 5, um, just because I it was a little bit more fat behind the Kura. And I wanted to make sure I got really good coverage. So um, it's a little bit of a gestalt. <laughs> and a little bit from talking to other people. You know, Dr. David Prologo obviously has been a really big mentor of mine and helping me out with that. And so, um, and then... Yeah. So I would say the workhorses are probably the spheres and the rods and then the forces whenever you have tumors. Gotcha. Gotcha. And tumors. Wow. So so much great information there. Do you have any other any other pearls or pitfalls you want to share uh, specifically about the stellates and then just in general about neurolysis? Know your pathophysiology. As I said, you know, I'm learning like how patients respond to blocks with and without steroids differently based on the pathophysiology of the disease. When you're blocking the exact same area, when you cryo the exact same area, nothing happens to some patients for pain relief or they get complete symptomatically, but they get a raging neuritis, you know. And so understanding that different disease processes have different effects on the nerves you're treating is very, very, very important to know. Having a good relationship with patients is so important. Being open to communicating with them, constant communication. 
hearing them when they say, I still have this pain is really important. You really have to hear your patients. It's very important. Being able to collaborate with others, playing in the sandbox, crucial to building a practice. And then if you're in the private practice realm or even in academics, you know, being able to talk the talk about finances and when things are beneficial, being able to talk to them about just like with kyphos, you know, you can decrease patient stay in hospitals by doing a kyphoplasty and, you know, increase your pain relief without opioids by doing a kyphoplasty versus having them sit there. Same thing with these pain procedures. You can help turn p- things around and get them out of hospitals faster. And for hospitals, be like, I can do a block as an inpatient, then bring them back for the cryo. You know, all these things you can do kind of with practice building. And colleagues. Oh, my gosh. I've texted so many people about different things and vice versa. And so learning what your network is and learning how to build it is very important. And knowing you can reach out. You have a whole community of people you can reach out and ask. And I'm just a tweet away if anybody has any questions. (laughs) Well, fantastic. Thank you. And and I do. uh, I really like what you said earlier about how available you are to your patients and your reference. And reminds me of one of our guests, Wayne Olin, uh, said on a recent appearance, availability is the best kind of ability. And, uh, you know, and we talk about the three A's uh, being affable, uh, available, and able. And so I, I think that's it's so crucial. And so I think it's, I'm obviously really interested in this area and I'm, I'm frustrated sometimes that I get pushback from people within our own specialty saying, oh, well, XYZ, you know, specialist or whomever isn't going to let you do that. And my experience has been that is just not accurate. It's not accurate. And as long as you're collegial and build up those relationships with them and show how you can help them, they are going to love you for it. And, and as long, especially if you're available, if they have a question and can call you up and say, Hey, is there anything you can do? And as interventional radiologists, the, the answer is rarely going to be, Nope. I can't do anything. It's like, hey, well, 100%. we can and try actually, this. And actually, your answer <laughs> should be, shoot me the MRN. Let me look at it. If you ever have any question about anything, anybody's in any kind of pain or anything, just shoot it to me and I'll look at it. And that goes with anything with radiology. You know, there is no Robert Rayu wrote this very good posting online about quote unquote trash IR that people call, you know, ports and paras and thoras and stuff. And those are some of my actual favorite procedures because they're very personal to the patients. Those are patients that you have returned to you. You're actually doing something to help immediately relieve pain when it comes to paras. And it's very personal to them. There is no such thing. So there is no small procedure. There is no small referral. And you want to do these things that people think are so cool. It always starts with the small stuff and it starts at the level of the patient and the patient care. And you show a patient good care and that you're there for them and that you listen to them, then that will return times 100. They'll tell the referring doctor how much Dr. Levy cared about them. And um, Dr. Levy does the best para because she uses a lot of lidocaine and plays music. You know, like the biggest compliment I think I'll end on this, the, the being involved in pain is everything I, w- I do for a patient, I want to be less pain. I had one patient at a kidney biopsy on and said, that's it? God, I felt like I was at the spa. <laughs> wow, that's quite the compliment because uh, I've been involved with some kidney biopsies that I would not put anywhere in the same realm as a spa visit. That's uh, that's quite the compliment. So uh, my my next question that I had written here, uh, as I'm looking at it, I'm like, wow, this is really pretty uh, unhelpfully vague, is just uh, future applications of cryo. And we've talked about current applications of cryo and almost seems science fiction. So I'm going to narrow that a little bit and just say... What are you excited to see happen with cryoneurolysis in the next couple years in terms of maybe 
things being more widely adopted or trying out new targets? What's what's on your mind that you're you're really wanting to get into next? Honestly, it's going to be having it be more widely adopted. And for that, we need those not T codes. We need full-fledged codes. And for that, we need research. And so that's something I know that I am personally trying to work on. It's so hard. There are so many barriers to doing good research right now, and you need a lot of support in order to do it. But that's really going to be the key to getting and pushing things forward and making them become more mainstream and more acceptable and then more accessible to patients, right? And so I think that starting off with anything you can do retrospectively to kind of just show and start to beef up the literature is really going to help it kind of take off. I think that there's a lot of research you've done. Actually, what I'm excited about, it took me three years at UT to beat into the like, oh my gosh, why are you resecting desmoids? You should be, we should cry all these. We should do TK inhibitors. You know, we can do embolizations. Like, finally, you know, something that's kind of on the forefront. And an oncologist I work with, you know, coming up with a protocol that where you can discuss TK inhibitor. And then after TK inhibitor, do you consider cryo or do you consider embolization? You know, there's this really cool desmoid tumor of the foot I saw. And I was like, gosh, and it was a previously, previously resected and irradiated. I'm like, oh, well, if I cryo that, I'm going to destroy all those tendons and everything else, but I can try embolization. And I can do embolization with doxorubicin, which is local, and then won't go to the lung. And those are really responsive to doxorubicin, something else cool you can do. You know, that's all these things we can do and get into this world of, say, for example, so I guess something would be cool, more so see it more as a standard of care treatment in some desmoids in certain, you know, desmoid tumor treatments. I think I would like seeing that start to pop up in the NCCN guidelines, especially since resection, they locally recur a lot. And I think that that is some things that are on the forefront right now that we're going to start seeing more of cryo, a treatment of desmoid tumors, cryoneurolysis, I think, becoming more of a standard of care with cancer patients, especially once we start coming up more data. Celiac blocks are already something that are kind of looked in there. So I'm very excited to see that. And yeah, I think those are probably like the main things, but I think really it's going to take a lot more research, a lot more talking, and a lot more acceptance um, from people. And it's going to take our colleagues helping to push for it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's it it's definitely a team effort. And I think the more that we can get the knowledge out there about what's even possible. And I, I have learned so much just uh, being able to talk to you tonight about what is possible using this. And I, this is something that I'm, I'm really into, you know? And so, you know, talking to some of this stuff, uh, even to some of my colleagues who are physicians, they're like, what, you know, it's, it's like science fiction. And so, but IR has been that way for a long time. Right. And now some of the things that we have pioneered that used to be unthinkable are now, you know, common done every day. And, uh, to the point that, uh, other specialties steal it. (laughs) I'm just, that's a little or joke. Or we teach that's a them, exactly. which is our own yeah. problem too, yeah. which yeah. we shouldn't be. And that's fine. But that's, I will that's, say that's just true. a little joke. And We're all about collaboration, yeah. right? We're all about collaboration. Yeah. But I will say, I mean, is didn't psychiatrists used to, people used to drill holes in people's heads to relieve pressure. And then, you know, intrathecal cocaine was a real thing. I mean, all, <laughs> well, drugs, but you know, the good old days, you know. But all these things came from somewhere and you have to try and you have to see what it works. And I think once, especially you show people that you're collaborative and stuff, they'll be willing to kind of let you try and let you work with them. And then slowly things start becoming more mainstream and more accepted. And then 
things start coming out. And it really, I think it does take, as we keep, I keep hammering on that collaborative nature for all this kind of stuff to get published and kind of become what is the new standard of care. And I think cryo is well on the way for that, for pain management, as well as for treatment of certain syndromes. Yeah. Well, I don't think I could have said it any better. Uh, that was uh, really well said. And I don't have anything else to add or ask you of just answer, just knocked all my questions out. And so uh, I think that that is a fantastic place uh, to end. But any any final words you'd like to share with, with our listeners? Anything is possible. Even if you don't feel like you have the support, you can do it. You know, it's uh, challenging, I would say, being a female in a male-dominated field. I am incredibly honored. I don't know how many women you've had on your podcast, but I am incredibly honored to be a female on well, this. Thank you so much be... for joining us. We really, It really means no. a lot. It means a lot. And to let people know that you can do it, you do have support. You could have a two and a four-year-old running around being crazy, but the support of your friends and colleagues, anything is possible. Just always do what's best for the patient and fight for the patient and everything will work out. That, that was beautiful. And I can't think of a, a higher note to go out on than that. So thank you so much. And bef- before we end, uh, what's your what's your Twitter or X handle for, for our listeners to follow you? It's super complicated at Alexa Levy with an extra E, L-E-V-E-Y. That's uh, that's pretty complex. So we'll, we'll add that to the show notes <laughs> and just in case they uh, they missed it. But Dr. Levy, this was fantastic. Like I said, I've learned so much. I can't wait for our listeners to hear about this. And as you, as you said just a moment ago, I really want to see how this expands in the next few years and we bring this out to and this becomes more of a mainstream therapy. Uh, So really excited about all the things we talked about. And again, thank you so much for your time coming on the show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts, Chris Beck, Sabine Dong, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, Josh Spencer. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Social media and PR by Ann Dang, Manisha Naganathanahali, and Manbir Singh Sabli. Administrative support provided by Jim Lee Kinnebrew. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening. 